This podcast is brought to you by Lannan Foundation and is available at podcast.lannan.org. Happy Bloomsday. I'm James Heffernan, and I'm here to talk about Stephen Dedalus, Leopold Bloom, and the ghost of Shakespeare in Chapter 9 of James Joyce's Ulysses. But first, I want to thank Patrick Lannan and everyone else at the Lannan Foundation for sponsoring this lecture, and as well as for doing so much to support the work of artists and writers and to nurture public experience of the arts. Secondly, since I'll have a lot to say about Shakespeare's Hamlet, and since Hamlet is all about the relation between a father and a son, I'd like to introduce my own son, Andrew, a professional actor who specializes in Shakespearean roles. Some time ago, when I was asked to give this lecture, it struck me that Andrew and I might perform together the ghost scene from Hamlet, with me as the ghostly father, of course, and Andrew as the princely son. But when I suggested this to Andrew, he replied like a true professional. Dad, he said, if you play the ghost, you get almost all the lines. I strongly suspect that this was his way, his tactful way of saying that if I tried to play any role with a professional actor beside me, everyone could see that I was nothing but an incurable ham. But then I remembered what Andrew did with Hamlet many years ago at Penn State University. As his final project for the MFA and acting there, he gave a one-man performance of the play cut to 90 minutes and 10 roles, all of which he played by himself. So later on in this lecture, when we come to the ghost scene, Andrew will remind you of it by playing both the princely son and the fatherly ghost. One more thing before we get into the lecture. I want to thank all of you. Over many years, I've lectured on Ulysses to various groups around the country and abroad, but nowhere else have I found so much enthusiasm for Joyce as I have found in Santa Fe. Of course, I'm not in Santa Fe now, and I'm very sorry that the present pandemic makes it impossible for me to speak to you in person. But one remarkable thing about this pandemic is how much we are learning about new ways of communicating, such as Skype and Zoom, as we talk to each other and drink to each other across the screen. Joyce would have been fascinated with this kind of communication because he loved modern technology, especially audiovisual technology. In 1909, when he was just 27, he launched Dublin's first movie theater, and though he dropped the venture just after a few months, he kept close track of all the ways in which we transmit and reproduce words, whether printed or spoken. Besides the newspapers of Ulysses, which give us each day our daily press, as Joyce says, the newly invented telephone plays a conspicuous part in the novel, 
and a bit part is played by the gramophone, the original record player. Near the end of the Hades chapter, the insatiably curious Leopold Bloom imagines hearing the recorded voice of a man long dead. Have a gramophone at every grave, or keep it in the house. After dinner on a Sunday, put on poor old great-grandfather. Crack! Hello, hello, hello! I'm awfully glad, crack! Awfully glad! See you again, hello, hello! Remind you of the voice, like the photograph reminds you of the face. Leopold Bloom thus imagines the recorded voice of poor old great-grandfather. But my own lecture today revolves around the voice of a dead father in the ghost scene from Hamlet that I just mentioned. Since this riveting scene inspires the whole theory of Shakespeare that Stephen Dedalus unwinds in Chapter 9 of Ulysses, we're going to be spending a lot of time on it. But first, let me give you some context for today's lecture. As some of you may know, I've given two previous lectures on Ulysses for the Lennon Foundation. If you heard either of the other two, rest assured that I will try not to repeat myself. But if you heard neither of the other two, <clears throat> you will still be able to follow this one, I hope. While I fully realize that many of you in Santa Fe are Joyce aficionados, I also realize that not all of you are. So let me offer a few quick points. Ulysses is the story of what is done, thought, and felt in a single day, June 16, 1904, by a 38-year-old Dubliner of Hungarian Jewish extraction who makes his living by selling advertising space for a Dublin newspaper. He's the father of two children, Millie, who has just turned 15, and Bloom's only son, Rudy, who died in infancy at the age of just 11 days. Bloom's wife, Molly, is a lovely, lively, 33-year-old soprano who probably looked something like this. Early on Bloomsday, Bloom discovers that she is planning to commit adultery at 4 p.m. with a flashy promoter named Blazes Boylan. All day long, as he wanders around Dublin, Bloom broods about this prospect, but feels that he can do absolutely nothing to prevent it. The other major character in this novel is Stephen Dedalus, a fictional version of Joyce's 22-year-old self. In Chapter 1, Stephen broods over the recent death of his mother and grudgingly tolerates the drunken antics of his friend Buck Mulligan, while also aspiring to become a writer. One stage of his unsteady progress toward that goal is the story he tells aloud to his friends at the end of Chapter 7, the baffling but also wickedly funny story called The Parable of the Plums. But equally important for his development as a writer is the story he tells in Chapter 9 about the greatest of all writers in the English language, William Shakespeare. Behind all of Ulysses, of course, stands a much older writer, the ancient Greek poet called Homer. In telling the story of Bloom's wanderings around Dublin on a single day, Joyce recreates in a modern city the episodes of Homer's Odyssey, the epic tale of the legendary Greek voyager known as Odysseus, who spent ten years fighting the Trojan War and another ten years getting back home afterwards. The Latin name for Odysseus is Ulysses, and because Bloom reenacts in his own 
humble way the adventures and exploits of Ulysses, he is the modern reincarnation of Homer's hero. So in this novel, Joyce takes on the founding father of Western literature, the master storyteller of the ancient world, and sets out to rival him in the art of storytelling. But Joyce's novel is also haunted by the ghost of Shakespeare, the undisputed god of playwrights. To recognize this fact is to see how daring Joyce is. He doesn't just take on Homer, the founding father of Western literature. He takes on Shakespeare, who towers over every other English writer that ever lived, including, of course, all those celebrated English novelists who came before Joyce. Jane Austen, Charlotte Bronte, Emily Bronte, Charles Dickens, George Eliot, William Makepeace Thackeray, Anthony Trollope, the whole grand parade of 19th century English novelists. So here now is James Joyce, this cheeky young boyo, this peat-stained, bog-trotting upstart, this nobody from the Dublin docks, as George Moore called him. But instead of trying to rival any of the celebrated English novelists of the 19th century, Joyce flicks them away like so many flakes of stale tobacco. Taking the whole world and all of Western tradition as his turf, he also takes a world-class playwright as the model and rival for his gigantic project. Just as Shakespeare inhabits the minds and hearts of all the characters he created, ranging from the saintly Cordelia to the diabolical Iago, just as Shakespeare enters all of these characters, Joyce invades the minds of scores of Dubliners, ranging from Stephen and Bloom and Molly to barmaids, priests, prostitutes, dewy young maidens, gypsy cockle-pickers, wheezy old midwives, and drunken nationalists. You name it, he gets inside every one of these characters and makes them speak in their own distinctive voices. In chapter 9, Stephen aims to get inside Shakespeare himself. This move is telegraphed in chapter 1, where Buck Mulligan says that Stephen proves by algebra that Hamlet's grandson is Shakespeare's grandfather, and that he himself is the ghost of his own father. Mulligan's version of Stephen's theory is, of course, totally garbled. Like one final exam blue book that I'll never forget. Years ago, in my course on English Romantic Poetry, I used to teach a poem by Byron that includes a long passage on the Battle of Waterloo. Curiously enough, Byron writes a dozen stanzas about Napoleon, who lost the battle, and says nothing about the winner, the English general who led the Allied forces to victory. That was the Duke of Wellington. But in one student's blue book, the Duke of Wellington became Duke Ellington. And ever since then, I've I've reimagined the Battle of Waterloo as a gigantic jazz festival. Okay, let's get back to Stephen Dedalus and Hamlet. The very, first, the very first chapter of Ulysses clearly prompts us to link Stephen with the famous prince because, like the prince, he wears black and broods over the recent death of a parent, in this case, his mother. Also, just as the ghost of Hamlet's father speaks to the prince in the first act of the play, Stephen remembers a dream in which his ghostly mother came to him speaking mute, secret words. And still more striking is the accusation that Mulligan flings at Stephen. 
With brutal indifference to Stephen's grief, Mulligan says, The aunt thinks you killed your mother. The aunt thinks you killed your mother. Just think about this in relation to Hamlet. In the first act of Shakespeare's play, the ghost tells his princely son that he, the now dead king, was poisoned by his brother, Hamlet's uncle, Claudius, who has since become the king of Denmark. But in the words of Buck Mulligan, the murderous uncle becomes Mulligan's aunt, and the target of her accusation is Stephen himself. So in this cracked mirror of what Shakespeare's ghost tells his son, Stephen is the murderer. Is he really? Is there any truth to this accusation? Well, yes, but to understand that truth, you probably need to have been raised a Roman Catholic, as I was. When Joyce's own mother was dying, one of his uncles told him to kneel down and pray for her, which he refused to do. His dying mother said nothing because she was in a coma. But in the novel, which is, of course, fiction, it's Stephen's mother who tells him to kneel down and pray for her. By refusing to do so, Stephen killed her, according to Mulligan's aunt. And as if that weren't bad enough, Mulligan drives the knife of guilt right into Stephen's heart. You could have knelt down, damn it, when your dying mother asked you. To think of your mother begging you with her last breath to kneel down and pray for her, and you refused. There is something sinister in you. So in the first chapter of Ulysses, Stephen plays a distinctly Roman Catholic version of Shakespeare's Hamlet. Rather than being told to murder his uncle so as to avenge the death of his father, he's made to feel guilty of murder purely for what Roman Catholics call a sin of omission. He failed to pray for his dying mother. But in chapter 9, Stephen says nothing about that and nothing even about his own relation to Shakespeare's prince. On the contrary, even though Stephen plainly resembles the brilliant, moody, melancholy Dane, he's not really interested in getting into that character, getting inside the mind and heart of the famous prince. Instead of talking about Hamlet, Stephen aims to plumb a character quite unlike himself, the ghost of the old king. Part of the reason he wants to do so is that just as Bloom is reenacting the adventures of Homer's Odysseus, Stephen is reenacting the quest of Telemachus, the 20-something son of Odysseus, also known as Ulysses. In the opening books of the Odyssey, Telemachus sets off to seek news of his father, who's been gone for 20 years. In the opening chapter of Ulysses, Stephen cares nothing for his biological father, or even for his family, which is why we find him living with two friends in a tower. But in Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, Joyce's autobiographical first novel, Stephen eventually finds a mythical father in Daedalus, the fabulous artisan of ancient Crete, the artisan who made wings for himself and his son so that they could escape the labyrinth where they were trapped with a raging bull. In Portrait of the Artist, the wing-making Daedalus inspires Stephen to take artistic flight. But in Ulysses, he takes a further step or further leap forward. Having found a mythical father in Daedalus, he now seeks a literary father. And for anyone writing in English, what literary father could possibly beat Shakespeare?
It's commonly said, of course, that Stephen ultimately finds a surrogate father in Leopold Bloom. In the later chapters, Bloom rescues Stephen after a drunken spree in Dublin's red light district, takes him home for cocoa, and talks to him at great length on a huge variety of topics. But what I want to argue today is that, is that Stephen's theory of Shakespeare, his quest to plumb the mystery of Shakespeare's identity, actually leads to Bloom. In other words, Stephen's lecture on Shakespeare enables us to recognize within the immortal playwright the humble, long-suffering family man we know as Leopold Bloom. Chapter 9 of Ulysses actually brings Bloom and Stephen to the same place, to the National Library of Dublin, which is where Stephen explains his theory of Shakespeare. The chapter begins in the early afternoon. When we last saw Stephen, it was about 1 p.m., and he was heading off to a boozy lunch with Miles Crawford, the newspaper editor, and several other men from the newspaper office. Now it's 2 p.m., and Stephen has come to the National Library for a practical and also rather trivial purpose. Mr. Deasy, the headmaster of the school where Stephen teaches, has asked him to circulate a letter about hoof and mouth disease. Having given one copy of Deasy's letter to Miles Crawford, the editor, he gives another copy to another editor, whom he finds at the library. In thus delivering one more copy of Deasy's letter about a cure for hoof and mouth disease, Stephen is once again doing very low-level literary work. Rather than forging in the smithy of his soul the uncreated conscience of his race, he's putting Deasy's limp prose into circulation and playing his very small part in the fight for Irish cattle. So Mulligan, he thinks, will call him a bullock-befriending bard. But during his time in the library, Stephen manages to do much more than just deliver a letter. In his own way, he builds on the creative work that he has already begun to do at the end of chapter 7. In that chapter, he doesn't just deliver Deasy's letter and then hang around listening to the newsmen gab. Near the end of the chapter, Stephen the listener becomes Stephen the talker, the storyteller, the begetter of the parable of the plums. In telling this story about two old Dublin women, he's beginning to find his own voice as a writer. He's beginning to recreate his native land. Chapter 9 also gets Stephen talking, but this time he doesn't wait for the end of the chapter to say his piece. He starts talking after just a few pages, and he dominates the conversation from there on. What he offers is a theory of Shakespeare that becomes a theory of literary creation, of Shakespeare as a literary father. Beneath and behind his theory of Shakespeare as a literary father lies the story of Stephen's own quest for a father, for someone who can help him understand what it means to be a father, to have a wife, to beget children, to create. Since this quest for a father will, inevit will inevitably lead Stephen to Bloom, it's only right that Bloom himself should play his own part in this chapter, even if it's just a small one hovering on the edges. So let's see how Bloom fits into this chapter. Between Stephen's visit to the newspaper office and his appearance in the library, Bloom has eaten his lunch. In turning from a chapter on Bloom to a chapter on Stephen, Joyce is sustaining the technique of alternation that began in chapter 4 
when he turned from three chapters on Stephen to the first of three chapters on Bloom. Joyce moves back and forth between these two characters so that we can keep both of them in mind, even though we haven't yet seen them meeting each other. But in this chapter, chapter 9, Stephen is made to notice Bloom for the first time in the novel. Partway through the chapter, Bloom comes to the library to look up a newspaper ad so that he can copy its design for a pub owner named Alexander Keyes. Just before Bloom appears, Mulligan arrives, and Mulligan already knows Bloom. So when Mulligan sees Bloom's dark figure following the librarian to the newspaper collection, he cries out nastily, The Sheeny! Then he explains to Stephen that he found Bloom in the museum where Bloom went to admire the statue of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Speaking of Bloom, Mulligan tells Stephen, He knows you. He knows your old fellow. Oh, I fear me. He is Greeker than the Greeks. His pale Galilean eyes were upon her mesial groove. Venus Calapige. Oh, the thunder of those loins. According to Mulligan, Bloom knows not only Stephen himself, but also Stephen's old fellow, namely his father. Bloom is thus linked to Stephen's father and to fatherhood. But even though Bloom has already begun to have paternal feelings for Stephen, Mulligan suspects Bloom of having sexual designs on Stephen. From this passage, it's clear that Mulligan has caught Bloom doing exactly what we know that he planned to do at the museum, which is furtively to check on whether the naked goddess has an anus. In other words, Mulligan has caught Bloom gazing on her mesial groove, the crack in the ass of Calipigian Venus, Venus of the beautiful buttocks, the exquisite buns. Also, to say that Bloom is Greeker than the Greeks is to imply that he's gay. And these implications become explicit in Mulligan's final comment on Bloom at the end of the chapter, when Bloom passes out of the library just as Mulligan and Stephen are leaving it. Right after Bloom passes between them, Mulligan whispers to Stephen in clownish awe, The wandering Jew, did you see his eye? He looked upon you to lust after you. Oh, Kinch, thou art in peril. Get thee a breech pad. Kinch is Mulligan's nickname for Stephen. So Mulligan is mock solemnly warning Stephen that Bloom is pederastically lusting after Stephen's breech, his ass. Mulligan himself may be gay, and he may even see Bloom as his rival for Stephen's affections in a gay triangle, a triangle that dimly reflects the heterosexual triangle of Bloom, Boylan, and Molly. But in any case, Mulligan sees Bloom as a peculiar kind of wanderer, a wandering Jew, recalling the legendary Jew who was doomed to wander the earth until the day of judgment because he mocked Christ on his way to Calvary. In a sense quite different from the one Mulligan intended, such a wanderer would indeed be Greeker than Homer's Greek, who managed to finish his voyage home in just 10 years. But for us, the figure of the wandering Jew calls to mind the still older figure of the wandering Ulysses. And when Bloom passes out of the library between Stephen and Mulligan, he dimly recalls the episode that gives the chapter its Homeric name, Scylla and Charybdis. 
In Homer's Odyssey, Scylla and Charybdis are a pair of perils that flank a narrow strait, so narrow that you can't avoid both perils, and they're both pretty scary. On one side, here on the upper left, is the whirlpool of Charybdis. On the other side, here on the lower right, is the she-monster called Scylla, who lives in a cave dug halfway up a sheer cliff. She has six heads at the end of six long necks, and whenever a ship passes her, each one of those heads chomps a sailor, which is why Ulysses loses six of his men while passing her cliff for the first time. The second time he passes it, all alone after a storm wrecks his ship, riding on a raft cobbled together from the keel and the mast, he's caught by the whirlpool of Charybdis. But when his raft is sucked down by the whirlpool, he manages to cling to the branch of a fig tree growing out over the water, and there he hangs until the whirlpool vomits up the raft again so that he can make his getaway. Okay, what does this story have to do with Bloom and Stephen Dedalus? Well, just as Homer's wandering voyager sails or passes between Scylla and Charybdis, the wandering Bloom passes between Stephen and Mulligan at the end of the chapter. But this implied comparison doesn't mean that Stephen and Mulligan correspond to the she-monster and the whirlpool. It simply suggests that they may be opposites. They may each embody certain extremes, such as intellectualism in Stephen and sensuality in Mulligan. Mulligan lives for sex and booze. Stephen thrives on thinking. Bloom sails between them. Though he's a thoughtful and curious, he's thoughtful and curious about many subjects. He cares a lot about his body and his appetites, both nutritional and sexual. In other words, he steers a middle way between sensuality and intellectualism, and to that extent he offers a model for Stephen to follow. For if Stephen hopes to be an artist, he must avoid the whirlpool of pure ideas, the whirlpool of empty abstractions. He must find a way to generate his art from the physical material life of Dublin, from the human bodies who walk the streets of Dublin. Only then can he recreate that life in his work. In this novel, the life of a man who wanders the streets of Dublin and thoroughly absorbs all of its sensations is perfectly exemplified by Leopold Bloom. But we get to Bloom by way of Shakespeare, and we get to Shakespeare by way of Hamlet. For Stephen, Hamlet is a play about Shakespeare's life. It's disguised autobiography, a veiled reenactment of Shakespeare's own experience, or rather Stephen's version of that experience. For Stephen's account of Shakespeare's life is so personal, so subjective, and so tendentious that it tells us more about Stephen himself than about Shakespeare. In seeking to unmask the playwright who stands behind the play, who stands behind the gigantic, multifarious multitude of all the characters he's created in all of his plays, Stephen is also seeking a literary father, someone to help him fulfill his own literary ambitions. Stephen thinks he can find that father in Shakespeare, and that he can find Shakespeare himself in the ghost of old King Hamlet. In taking the ghost as the key to the whole play, Stephen does something at once original and personal. 
He turns away from the title figure, the young prince, the tormented son, the melancholy dreamer, the philosophic speculator who has fascinated so many critics of the play, and who has sometimes been identified with Shakespeare himself. Turning away from this tormented son, Stephen zeroes in on the tormented father, the ghost burning in purgatory for his sins, the ghost burning with rage at the man who has taken his life, his wife, and his throne. Stephen himself, remember, is the son of a ghostly mother who has recently come to him in a dream. So Stephen is riveted by the scene in which the ghost of old King Hamlet appears to his son. But how could he identify the ghost with Shakespeare if Shakespeare was alive to write the play? Stephen anticipates this question. What is a ghost, he asks, one who has faded into impalpability through death, through absence, through change of manners? So according to Stephen, if Shakespeare left his wife in Stratford while he lived and worked in London for 20 years, then he became a ghost by absence. To his wife and children, he was only a memory, as if he had died. On the strength of this would-be biographical fact, which is, of course, really just a piece of speculation, Stephen builds the argument that the ghost in Hamlet represents Shakespeare himself. Stephen launches his argument by telling a story, a story just as rich in specific details as his earlier story of the old Dublin ladies climbing Nelson's pillar in chapter 7. Using his imagination for all it's worth, he creates a verbal picture of the very first time that Hamlet was performed in early 17th century London. On stage at the Globe Playhouse, on the bank of the River Thames, in the early afternoon of a day in mid-June, like Bloomsday, with the role of the ghost played by Shakespeare himself, who was an actor as well as a playwright. In other words, while other critics see Shakespeare as the international genius of platonic ideals and formless spiritual essences, Stephen aims to repatriate Shakespeare, to put him back on the ground in England, in London, in the playhouse by the riverbank, to situate him in a particular time and place, and to recover him as a human being caught up in a painful set of family relations like the ghost of old King Hamlet, as played by Shakespeare himself. The play begins, says Stephen to his audience. A player comes on under the shadow, made up in the cast-off mail of a court buck, a well-set man with a bass voice. It is the ghost, the king and no king, and the player is Shakespeare, who has studied Hamlet all the years of his life, which were not vanity, in order to play the part of the specter. He speaks the words to Burbage, the young player who stands before him, beyond the rack of cerecloth, calling him by a name. Hamlet, I am thy father's spirit. I am thy father's spirit. Doomed for a certain term to walk the night. And for the day confined to fast in fires till the foul crimes done in my days of nature are burnt and purged away. But that I am forbid to tell the secrets of my prison house, I could a tale unfold whose lightest word 
would harrow up thy soul. But this eternal blazon must not be to ears of flesh and blood. List. List. Oh, list. If thou didst ever thy dear father love. Oh, God. Revenge his foul and most unnatural murder. Murder? Murder. Most foul, as in the best it is. But this, most foul, strange, and unnatural. Haste me to know it, that I with thoughts as swift as meditation or the thoughts of love may sweep to my revenge. I find thee apt. And duller shouldst thou be than the fat weed that roots itself in ease on Lethe wharf, shouldst thou not stir in this. Now, Hamlet, here, tis given out that sleeping in mine orchard, a serpent stung me. So the whole ear of Denmark is by a forged process of my death rankly abused. But know thou, noble youth, the serpent that did sting thy father's life, now wears his crown. Oh, my prophetic soul, my uncle. Why, that incestuous, that adulterate beast, with witchcraft of his wits, with traitorous gifts, won to his shameful lust the will of my most seeming virtuous queen. Oh, Hamlet, what a falling off was there. But soft, methinks I sent the morning air. Brief let me be. Sleeping within mine orchard, my custom always in the afternoon. Upon my secure hour thy uncle stole, with juice of cursed hebanon in a vial. And in the porches of mine ears did pour the leprous distillment, whose effect holds such an enmity with blood of man, that swift as quicksilver it courses through the natural gates and alleys of the body. So did it mine. Thus was I sleeping by a brother's hand of life, of crown, of queen, at once dispatched, cut off, even in the blossoms of my sin, no reckoning made, but sent to my account with all my imperfections on my head. Oh, horrible! Oh, horrible! Most horrible! If thou hast nature in thee, bear it not. Let not the royal bed of Denmark be a couch for luxury and damned incest. Fare thee well at once. 
The glowworm shows the matin to be near, and gins to pale his uneffectual fires. And you, and you, Hamlet, remember me. of heaven, O oh, earth, what else, and shall I couple help, remember thee, I, thou poor ghost, whilst memory holds a seat in this distracted globe, remember thee, yea, from the table of my memory, I'll wipe away all trivial fond records, all saws of books, all forms, all pressures past, that youth and observation copied there, and thy commandment, all alone, shall live within the book and volume of my brain, unmixed with baser matter, yes, by heaven. So, uncle, there you are, my tables. Now to my word, it is a due, a due. Remember me, my tables, my tables. The meat it is. I set it down that one may smile and smile and be a villain. <laughs> I'm sure it may be so in Denmark. Thanks very much, Andrew. And here is what Stephen Dedalus says about the speech of the ghost. To a son, he speaks, the son of his soul, the prince, young Hamlet, and to the son of his body, Hamnet Shakespeare, who has died in Stratford, that his namesake may live forever. Stephen thus imagines that in the very, very first production of Hamlet, Shakespeare himself plays the ghost. In that role, says Stephen, Shakespeare speaks not only to the son of his soul, to the character that he has created in his play, but also to the son of his body, his actual son, a boy named Hamnet, who died in Stratford at the age of 11 in 1596. The last point is a well-established fact. And also, as a member of a well-known acting company, Shakespeare certainly could have been the first actor who ever played the ghost. Given that possibility, and given the fact that Hamnet died in boyhood, Stephen takes Prince Hamlet as the dramatized version of Shakespeare's son, the dramatized version of what Shakespeare's little boy Hamnet might have grown up to be. And Stephen has already argued that Shakespeare's long separation from his home and his wife has made him a ghost by absence. Consequently, when the ghost tells the prince 
that Claudius murdered him for his wife and his throne. Stephen imagines that Shakespeare is saying to Hamnet, You are the dispossessed son. I am the murdered father. Your mother is the guilty queen. And Shakespeare, born Hathaway. Of course, Stephen is wildly stretching the facts. He's asking us to assume that Shakespeare's mere absence from Stratford makes him somehow a victim of murder, that his now dead son has been posthumously disinherited, and most problematic of all, that his wife has committed adultery during his absence. This hypothesis is so wild that Stephen himself has trouble swallowing it. His self-doubts emerge in moments of silent self-questioning that periodically break up his long speeches. At one point, he provocatively argues that fatherhood is a mystical estate. Motherhood may be the only true thing in life. Paternity may be a legal fiction. Who is the father of any son that any son should love him or he any son? A very scary question. But here, Stephen stops talking out loud for a moment to interrogate himself, silently. What the hell are you driving at? I know. Shut up. Blast you. I have reasons. Are you condemned to do this? Stephen doesn't answer his own final question. But by now, we know him well enough to guess the answer. He has condemned himself to do this because he desperately wants to know what it means to be a father and have a son. This question leads him not only to Shakespeare, but to a Shakespeare who looks very much like Ulysses on the one hand and Leopold Bloom on the other. For even though Stephen is scarcely aware of these resemblances, his version of Shakespeare's life enables us to see them. Think about what links Shakespeare to both Ulysses and Leopold Bloom. Like Ulysses, the Shakespeare described or imagined by Stephen spends 20 years away from his home and comes back at the end of his life. Bloom leaves Molly for no more than a long day, but he too returns at the end of the day. In other words, each of these wanderers finally comes back to his home and his wife. Also, all three wanderers suspect their wives of infidelity during their absence. We already know about Bloom. We'll shortly consider what Stephen says about Shakespeare's suspicions of Anne Hathaway. And when Ulysses comes home, he finds a houseful of men pressing his wife to remarry, and he won't reveal himself to her until he has tested her fidelity to him. Still more parallels emerge when we focus just on Bloom and Shakespeare, by which I mean, once again, Stephen's version of Shakespeare. By the time Shakespeare wrote Hamlet, his son had died at the age of 11 years, and as we've already noted, Bloom's infant son, Rudy, died at the age of 11 days. Also, it's a matter of established fact, not just Stephen's speculation, that besides having a son who died at the age of 11 years, the man who wrote Hamlet also had a dead father and a living daughter, just like Leopold Bloom. Think, too, about Shakespeare playing the ghost and speaking to Hamlet, the son of his soul, the grown-up version of his dead son. When Shakespeare speaks to this grown-up version of his dead son, Hamnet, he reminds us again of Bloom, of Bloom's tendency to think of Stephen as the grown-up version of little dead Rudy. 
Back in chapter 6, when Bloom catches sight of Stephen en route to the cemetery, he thinks about what little Rudy might have become. In fact, what draws Bloom to Stephen throughout the novel, and what finally prompts Bloom to invite Stephen to spend the night, is Bloom's fantasy that Stephen might somehow replace little Rudy in the Bloom household, that Stephen could become Bloom's surrogate son. So now we see the parallels between Shakespeare, Ulysses, and Bloom. In Shakespeare's play, Hamlet tells a group of players that the chief purpose of a play is to hold a mirror up to nature. As Stephen interprets him, the ghost of old King Hamlet mirrors the life of Shakespeare, the life of Ulysses, and the life of Bloom, who in a way has already begun to play the ghosts before chapter 9 even begins. Near the beginning of chapter 8, when Bloom is watching the gulls floating on the river Liffey, he gets to thinking about poetry, and he quotes to himself the very first lines spoken by the ghost of old King Hamlet. Hamlet, I am thy father's spirit, doomed for a certain time to walk the earth. For the record, or for any Shakespearean specialist who may be watching this video, I should say that Bloom and Stephen both misquote the first line here, which is simply, I am thy father's spirit, not Hamlet, I am thy father's spirit. But the real point is that both Bloom and Stephen think about Hamlet today. Yet another point of convergence between them. Also, in quoting, or even misquoting, the words of the ghost, Bloom links himself to the ghost, and through the ghost to Shakespeare, the literary father that Stephen seeks. Stephen seeks Shakespeare in all of his works. Having raised the curtain of his argument by describing the ghost scene from Hamlet, he seeks a clue to Shakespeare's early life in one of his early works, a narrative poem called Venus and Adonis. Stephen reads this poem as a mythologized version of Shakespeare's love affair with Anne Hathaway, which led to her pregnancy and their hasty marriage. The world believes, says a character named Eglinton, the world believes that Shakespeare made a mistake and got out of it as quickly and as best as he could. Bosh, Stephen says rudely. A man of genius makes no mistakes. His errors are volitional and are the portals of discovery. Very well. How does Shakespeare's sexual error with Anne Hathaway lead him to compose Venus and Adonis? Well, this poem tells what happens after Venus, the goddess of love, falls in love with a handsome young man named Adonis. In spite of her captivating charms, he insists on going hunting, as men will, and ends up getting fatally gored by a boar. Okay, you ask, where do we find Anne and Will in this story? Well, since Anne was 26 and Will was 18 when she conceived his child, Stephen argues that Venus and Adonis tells in disguise the story of how Anne seduced Will. If others have their will, he says, Anne hath a way. The gray-eyed goddess who bends over the boy Adonis, stooping to conquer, as prologue to the swelling act, is a bold-faced Stratford wench who tumbles in a cornfield a lover younger than herself. In thus seducing Shakespeare, Stephen claims, she unmanned him, left him sexually gored, sexually traumatized, for evidence, Stephen points to the dark lady of Shakespeare's sonnets. 
Supposedly, this lady rejected Shakespeare when he sent his friend William Herbert to woo her for him. If the story is true, Stephen wonders why such a lord of language would possibly need another to speak for him. Why, Stephen asks, belief in himself has been untimely killed. He was overborne in a cornfield first, and he will never be a victor in his own eyes after, nor play victoriously the game of laugh and lie down. No later undoing will undo the first undoing. The tusk of the boar has wounded him there where love lies a-bleeding. Poor bloody will. But how can we square this picture of a sexually wounded young man with a hugely successful playwright he became? And how can Shakespeare have been simply the cuckolded victim of an adulterous wife when he may well have had his own sexual adventures in London, miles away from Anne? Twenty years he dallied there, says Stephen. Twenty years he dallied there between conjugal love and its chaste lights and scortatory love and its foul pleasures. Once, says Stephen, Shakespeare overheard a woman asking another actor named Richard to come to her after she had seen him play Richard III. But Shakespeare got to her bedroom first. So when Burbage came knocking, Will cried out, William the Conqueror came before Richard III. Does this sound like a sexually victimized man or an irrepressible playboy? Okay, obviously the latter. But if Shakespeare was a playboy, let's remember an epic hero who spent 20 years away from his wife, tomcatting around the Mediterranean, bedding down for one whole year with a lovely enchantress named Circe, and then for seven years with a beautiful nymph called Calypso. Yeah, that's the original Ulysses I'm talking about. And Ulysses, you remember, comes home at last to find his house usurped and his wife harassed by suitors whom he eventually slaughters. In other words, the philandering of this wandering husband hardly precludes his getting outraged by the infidelity of his wife, or even by threats to her fidelity. Yes, of course, it's a double standard. Now, Stephen isn't talking about Ulysses. He's reading Shakespeare's work as the mirror of his life. But the story he's telling about that life makes Shakespeare sound like yet another long-absent husband who doesn't fully trust his wife, or in this case, who believes that she has cheated on him. Take, for instance, Shakespeare's will, where he leaves her his second-best bed. This could well be a token of affection for Anne, something beyond what she would ordinarily inherit by common law, which slighted widows in favor of first-born sons. But because second best sounds on the face of it like a slight, Stephen takes it as evidence that Shakespeare thought Anne was unworthy of his best bed. Thus, Stephen grinds the facts to fit his theory, and he finds still more grist for his mill in the names of two of Shakespeare's three brothers, Richard and Edmund. As Stephen rightly says, Shakespeare gives those names to two of his greatest villains— the utterly ruthless Richard III woos and wins a widow named Anne, of all things. And in King Lear, Edmund the Bastard usurps the place of his brother Edgar and also connives at the vicious blinding of their father. So with Edmund and Richard and Claudius, usurping brother of old King Hamlet, you've got more than enough grist for Stephen's theory. 
that Shakespeare thought his wife had been seduced by one or more of his brothers during his long stay in London. Consequently, Stephen finds one theme permeating all of Shakespeare's work. The theme of the false or the usurping or the adulterous brother or all three in one is to Shakespeare what the poor are not always with him. The note of banishment, banishment from the heart, banishment from home, sounds uninterruptedly from the two gentlemen of Verona onward till Prospero breaks his staff. It is in infinite variety everywhere in the world he has created, in Much Ado About Nothing, twice in As You Like It, in The Tempest, in Hamlet, in Measure for Measure, and in all the other plays which I have not read. (laughs) Stephen punctuates this speech with a laugh, knowing that he has blown up his theory like a balloon until it pops. Shortly afterwards, when he is asked if he believes his own theory, Stephen frankly and promptly says, no. But here he comes closest to revealing his own hidden agenda. Here he all but tells us why he so desperately seeks to show that the ghost in Hamlet is Shakespeare himself. Shakespeare struggling with the pain of usurpation and banishment. Stephen's theory is an exercise in self-revelation. What Stephen says about Shakespeare is what he wants and needs to believe about his own life and his mission in life. As a former student of mine once observed, Stephen goes to Shakespeare, his literary father. Stephen goes to Shakespeare to get permission to create his art from his own sense of banishment and usurpation. Stephen is banished, or self-banished, from his father's home and from the Martello Tower, the tower for which Mulligan holds the key. He cannot go home, and yet he must somehow work out his relation to home, to his family, his religion, his country. He must forge a relation between himself as an artist and the outside world. He must find a way between Charybdis and Scylla, between the whirlpool of self-absorption and the hard rock of mere brute facts about his native city of Dublin, the sort of facts that get chewed up and spewed out by newspapers, just like the men of Odysseus were chewed up by Scylla. For this exacting passage between self-absorption and the world of hard fact, Shakespeare is Stephen's model. As Stephen says of Shakespeare, he found in the world without, that is the outside world, he found in the world without as actual what was in his world within as possible. Every life is many days, day after day. We walk through ourselves, meeting robbers, ghosts, giants, old men, young men, wives, widows, brothers in love, but always meeting ourselves. To get philosophical for a moment, this is Aristotle reconfigured by Joyce. As a Joycean critic named Samuel Goldberg has argued, Stephen uses both Shakespeare and Aristotle to help him define the soul. Aristotle draws a line between potentiality and actuality. What could happen and what is made to happen, actualized, realized for us to see and hear and touch. According to Stephen, the soul is a potentiality that actualizes itself through experience, which is why in meeting others, we walk through ourselves. Stephen 
not only recognizes himself in Shakespeare, he sees in Shakespeare an artist who fused the subject of life with the objective world. As Stephen imagines him, Shakespeare neither lost himself in a whirlpool of subjectivity nor turned his art into the rock of hard objective facts, the scylla of pure objectivity. Instead, he found his way between these two perils by making his art a vitally humanized mirror of life, while representing the outside world in all its color and life and variety, he poured his spirit into all the reflections of that world that he sets before us. His art reflects both himself and the world. In Shakespeare's work, and most especially in Hamlet, this fusion of the subjective and the objective is best exemplified by the relation between the father and the son. In Hamlet, according to Stephen, Shakespeare dramatizes the objective facts of his own life, of his own situation as a husband and father. But he also projects himself as the spiritual father of all his race, including, of course, all the writers who would follow him. When Shakespeare wrote Hamlet, Stephen says, he was not the father of his own son merely, but being no more a son, he was and felt himself the father of all his race, the father of his own grandfather, the father of his unborn grandson. In the Shakespeare thus defined by Stephen, we can once again recognize Stephen himself, the artist who burns to father a race of his own, to forge in the smithy of his soul the uncreated conscience of his race. But there's a further complication here. Even though Stephen passionately seeks his literary father in Shakespeare, he nonetheless makes us wonder just how far paternity can serve as a metaphor for literary creation. This is the final twist in the long, snaky line of Stephen's argument. It's a twist that recalls a remarkable passage in the first book of Homer's Odyssey when the goddess Athena asks Telemachus if he is the son of Ulysses. In Richmond Lattimore's translation, he answers, My mother says, indeed, I am his son. I, for my part, do not know. Nobody really knows his own father. Nobody really knows his own father. As we've just seen, this extraordinary statement is echoed by Stephen when he says that fatherhood is a mystical estate and that motherhood may be the only true thing in life. Let's remember, too, what comes to Stephen's mind back in chapter 2 when Stephen is teaching school and a snail-like schoolboy named Cyril Sargent comes to him for help with his algebra. Like him was I, Stephen thinks. I was like him. Sargent's vulnerability reminds him of his own childhood and of his dependence on a mother who nourished and protected him from a brutal world. But for her, the race of the world would have trampled him underfoot, a squashed, boneless snail. If children cannot survive without their mothers, if motherhood may be the only true thing in life, what should we say about a theory of literary creation based on fatherhood? It's obviously incomplete, a theory whose potentiality can be actualized only with the full participation of women and mothers. That is why Ulysses includes not only Molly's final monologue, 
but a whole chapter on childbearing that hits home with me quite as much as, as the whole theme of fathers and sons, because my own father was an obstetrician who delivered some 8,000 babies. I kid you not. And I am the ninth child of a mother who lived to be nearly 102. So it's fascinating to think about the various ways in which Joyce imagines literary creation. At the end of Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, Stephen Dedalus imagines the artist or writer as a blacksmith or metal sculptor determined to forge in the smithy of my soul the uncreated conscience of my race. But in Ulysses, the idea of creation is inseparable from begetting. And to plumb the depths of that, Joyce has to go way back. Back not just behind Shakespeare, but also behind Homer. Back to the book of Genesis, the primordial book of begettings, to Eve, the first mother. In chapter 3, where Stephen meditates on the sands of Sandy Mount Strand, he catches sight of a couple of midwives, and his mind is instantly thrown back to his own birth and then to the mythic origin of all human beings. Talking of the midwives, he says, One of her sisterhood lugged me squealing into life. Creation from nothing. What has she in the bag? A misbirth with a trailing navel cord hushed in ruddy wool. The cords of all link back, strand and twining cable of all flesh. That is why mystic monks, will you be as gods? Gaze in your omphalos. Hello, Kinch here. Put me on to Edenville. Aleph, Alpha, not, not, one. Stephen is haunted by the ghost of Shakespeare, father of Hamnet and Hamlet, father of all the characters he has created. Stephen is also fascinated by the inexhaustible mystery of creation itself, of where and how human life began. Yet no matter how far Stephen travels back into the past, he never forgets the present. Even as he goes back to the Garden of Eden, he does so by means of a totally modern instrument, the telephone. For Stephen, the umbilical cord becomes a telephone wire, the strand entwining cable of all flesh that allows us to communicate with the mother of us all, whose telephone number is made with two zeros and a one. And zero and one are, of course, the two numbers that begot the digital technology of our own time. The deeper we plunge into Ulysses, the more we discover its capacity to encompass not just the whole history of Western literature from Homer and the Bible to Shakespeare and beyond, but the whole history of time itself. And that is why Ulysses never goes out of date. Just as Shakespeare's ghost will forever speak to Hamlet, Ulysses will forever speak to anyone who can read the English language or hear the incomparable music that Joyce has made it sing. My thanks again to the Lannan Foundation for sponsoring this lecture and to my son Andrew for his performance. You've been listening to a Lannan podcast. You can subscribe to our podcast at podcast.lannan.org. In addition, the Lannan Audio Archives present similar programs by national and international writers, poets, and social activists at www.lannan.org. Listen to hundreds of hours of recorded programs from the likes of Seamus Haney, Joy Harjo, 
Eduardo Galliano, Arundhati Roy, Jim Harrison, Edwidge Danticott, and Noam Chomsky. New programs are added every month to both the podcasts and the audio archives. <laughs>